ring that bell with the other, I'd be shaking the baton and ringing the bell, I'm afraid. Well, we continue in our study of Revelation. Last week we were wrapping up chapter 6, and here's a memory aid. If you want to remember 6, think 6 plagues, because 6 of the 7 plagues... Uh, are included, of, of the seals, I should say, six seals. Six of the seven seals are broken open, unbroken in, uh, in chapter 6. And as you recall, we are a part of this heavenly vision looking over John's shoulder. And we watch as the Lamb of God, who is the only one who is worthy to do so, begins to, un, uh, to unseal, to break open the seals of, on the scroll of human destiny. And uh, the first four uh, seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we see the, uh, uh, the, the horsemen of, of tyranny and the horse of warfare, the horse of famine, the horse of death. Following on the heels of that, we, we join uh, John as he looks and sees the, 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 the saints who have died the, from religious persecution, the martyrs whose voice is crying out from beneath the altar, whose blood really cries out as well. So the fifth seal is the seal of religious persecution. And then uh, nature gets into the deal. And the, ch- and the sixth seal is, is all of nature breaks loose. And we have these horrendous asteroids and earthquakes and, and mountains and islands disappearing. And all hell is breaking loose, it seems, as we have called forth the coming of God's Messiah, the Lamb, the only one who is worthy. Well... <clears throat> This morning we come to chapter 7, and if you remember chapter 6 because of six seals, remember chapter 7 this way. What do we call the seventh day? What's another word for besides Sunday? The Sabbath. Well, actually, it's it's our Sabbath. It's not the Sabbath, but it's our Sabbath, right. And I want you to think of seventh day as Sabbath, for suddenly when we come to this text in chapter 7, we come to a gracious rest. A gracious quiet. Everything settles out. The chapter 6 closed with this, this question, though. Uh, the great day of wrath has come, and he's talking about the wrath of the Lamb of God and the wrath of the one who sits on the throne. And who can stand in a world that is overrun by tyranny and warfare and famine and death and religious persecution and natural disaster? It's a great question. Who can possibly stand? And when we hear that, we need rest. We need a Sabbath break from that. And God graciously offers that to us this morning as we turn to chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. Let us turn. Beginning with verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on the air or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the other four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon. From the tribe of Levi. From the tribe of Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we, your children, gather now to hear your word to us today. 144,000 doesn't sound like very many. And if indeed that's all that's going to make it, we are in trouble. But we believe something more, something greater, something broader than that. 
We pray that the truth that that will be spoken to our hearts this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Chapter 6 means seals. Chapter 7 is seventh. For suddenly there comes upon this work, this book, a gracious rest. It may be the most gracious of the books, in, of the chapters in the book of Revelation. Because in the midst of worldwide destruction and calamity, it is as if God all of a sudden says, Hold on. Hold on to everything. Stop right where you are. Chapter 6 opened up with these seals, and in chapter 8 we're going to see the last of the seven seals open. But chapter 7 is rest. It is Sabbath. And everything comes to a screeching halt. Did you see that in the reading? Maybe it wasn't quite apparent, but that is exactly what is taking place. It opens with four characters. What are they? Angels. And now this is the first and the last we'll ever hear of these angels. You know, we would love to have, for the sake of our own Western way of thinking, we'd love to have these people that are introduced, these characters, kind of play it out to the very end. But again and again throughout Revelation, we see a picture of something and it disappears. It tells one story and it's gone. Sometimes we're not even sure the story it tells. But here it is clear the story it tells. Here are the angels and they are stationed. It says at the four corners of the world. And what are they doing? They're holding back the four winds. And we understand these winds to be winds of destruction. Chapter 6 ended, if you recall, with all of nature coming apart at the seams. And the winds are a part of that nature. And if they are left to themselves, these winds that are a part of this nature that is in cataclysm right now could bring further havoc upon the earth. And yet, in a gracious act, God says, to the, he orders that these angels will hold it back. He restrains it. He brings a Sabbath rest in the midst of calamity. In the Middle East, these winds are very common and they are vicious. There are no trees in many places in the Middle East, no trees in many places of Palestine, no protection. And so these hot, biting winds that blow through there feel like the grid of sandpaper against your face. Two times ago when I uh, led a group to uh, Israel, three times ago, uh, we were in the garden tomb and we were going to celebrate communion as we always do as a part of our, uh, our time together there in, in Jerusalem. Suddenly one of these shirakos came up and they have an Arab name for it and I don't remember what the name of it is, but one of these winds came up and it came down into that bowl that is the area that is surrounded by the cliffs in the garden tomb and it, the, the sand was hitting us in the face. We could barely hold the communion elements in place and it was a mess and painful too in the eyes and on the face just because of the fury of this wind. Imagine those kinds of winds. And we understand winds here. Imagine them on a worldwide ferocious level. For those of you who lost trees, I came home uh, from our vacation to find one of our big trees. It's like this now because of those winds. We've lost 21 on our property. We know what happens when winds are not held at bay around here, don't we? And that's exactly what would happen if these devastating winds were given their head. They would lay waste to the world, tear up the soil, tear up the trees. But God's angels step in and restrain. Suddenly, the na- nature gets quiet at the word of God. There comes a rest, a Sabbath rest. The winds are stilled on the land and on the sea. And then another angel shows up and continues this theme of rest which is one that I want to get you, get into your heads because again and again we're going to see how God intervenes in a world that is evil and brings rest and peace. He says, I will not let it go any farther. That is enough. And another angel comes and gives instructions to these first four. He says, don't let any other harm come to the land or the sea or the trees. And so we have this wonderful image of God's restraint. Even though it appears that a world is out of control, That evil has had the final word. In fact, God is very much in control. God is setting boundaries, parameters. 
And he says, it will go no farther. And the sovereign Lord that we learned of in chapter 6, the despotes, the sovereign Lord has called a stop to the devastation. Perhaps you are at a point in your life where you need God to intervene and draw boundaries around what you feel to be devastation in your life. The promise of this text is great. For as calamitous as our life might be, God draws boundaries. He says, this much and no further. Why does he do this? Why does he call a halt to it here? Because this same sovereign God has some important things to do according to this text. What is it? He has some sealing to do. Now, I thought we were talking about breaking open the seals. We took two chapters just to find out who was worthy to open up the seals and then begin to break them open. Now, why on the heels of all of this unsealing do we want to suddenly have sealing? Which is what we have. I want you to see something. If I could find it. Here in this interlude between the world breaking apart and the chapter 7, we come to this moment and we talk about sealing. Here's a ring. I was thinking about wearing it, but I probably won't because it belongs to my son. He calls it his Moses ring. I think he started wearing the Moses ring after he saw the most recent uh, movie, uh, the, the Disney cartoon about Moses. It's a beautiful, big ring, and he carries it around with him everywhere he went. Every king, every ruler that, that ruled at the time that John was writing this text had a signet ring like this. He might have had his name on it or some sort of em- emblem on it that was put reverse, in reverse lettering. And so when he dictated a letter or a law or a scroll after it was written down on the, ro- on the scroll, on the paper, and rolled up, hot wax was dripped on the parchment, he would take that signet ring, which only he bore, only he possessed, and press it down into the wax. And it would cool and he would pull it away and he had placed his seal upon it. Now the seal provided two purposes. First of all, it declared ownership. When a king placed his seal on something, he was declaring, this is mine. This law, this dictate, this letter, this belongs to me. The second thing it did, it protected the document for who indeed would dare to break open the seal of the king. We just saw that, didn't we, in chapter 5. Who is worthy to break open the, the, the seal that is sealed by the one who sits on the throne in heaven? No one. And that's why we're so delighted and amazed that finally one shows up who is able to do it. Who will do it? Because the seal protected the contents of that document. But there's something unusual here in this, isn't it? For ordinarily, it would be a document that was sealed. It was a roll that was sealed. It was a book that was sealed. What is being sealed here? What is being sealed here? People. People. Believers. 144,000 of them. The text simply calls them servants of God and they have this mark, this seal placed on their forehead which we understand to be right out in plain sight to declare to everyone, including God, but everyone and the world, I belong to the king, the despotes, the sovereign God in heaven. There's great controversy around this 144,000 figure. Some take this number literally. Are you beginning to see how numbers have meaning in, in Revelation that go beyond actual literal translation? They have meaning beyond that. Some of our friends, including our Jehovah's Witness friends, believe that this is exactly what it means, 144,000, and that only 144,000 are worthy, and they they must be the most worthy, are going to make it to heaven. And when you see these dear souls at your door selling you watchtower, you understand that, that they consider this a matter of eternal consequence, not just to you, but to them. Somehow, by their good deeds, they have got to make the short list. 
or they're not going to get into heaven. Can you imagine the pressure, the competition? I mean, because you're working against each other, really. I mean, this isn't a binding together sort of thing. 144,000 best, 144,001, too bad. Not surprisingly, I, I believe this is exactly wrong. I believe this is exactly the wrong understanding about it. Remember what I said in Revelation. Words, letters, numbers, pictures, they have meaning. Numbers are symbolic. The number 144,000 is a combination of numbers. First of all, 12. What does 12 mean to the Jew who is reading, to the Christian who is reading? 12 tribes, 12 disciples, who knows? But it's a big, that's an important number. And so you take 12 times 12 makes it really, really, really important. And then you multiply it by a thousand, which is a big number. And you have a really, really, really big, important number. That's what it's saying. If you read more into that, you're going to drive yourselves crazy. It is 144,000, which he is saying, by, is another way of saying, a huge number. And it is very important. Now, how does he count it out? He takes 12 from every tribe. You realize by this time, there are only, the, the, the 10 tribes have disappeared utterly, and that the two tribes have lost uh, their power entirely. Now, some believe that means that God is going to come back and we're going to rediscover who all of those lost tribes are, which will be quite a trick. But this is not an accurate list. When you look at the Old Testament, the listing of the tribes in the Old Testament, this is not an accurate list. Why? Well, first of all, the first listing in the, in, in, of the tribes is what? In this one. Who's the first of the tribes? Judah. Who is ordinarily listed in any list of the sons of a man? The firstborn. And who was that? Reuben. Very good. Now you get the benefit of the reduced tithe this year. Reuben was the, the eldest son. And yet Judah is listed first. Why is Judah listed first? It's the tribe of Jesus. That's exactly right. It's the tribe of Jesus. There are other things here. Normally, Joseph's two sons are listed in the tribe. Manasseh and Ephraim, they were half, half tribes. And yet, in this case, Joseph is listed. And Manasseh is listed with Joseph. Ephraim is not listed. Dan is deleted altogether. For, for many reasons that I don't have the time to go into today, I do not accept the common interpretation of this text, which says that this represents the return of the Jewish nation to Christ. I do think that Scripture alludes to that in Romans 9, 10, 11. But I don't believe that this is referring to that. I believe that this speaks of a new Israel. The church of Jesus Christ. It is an Israel that transcends tribes and tongues and ethnicity. It is an Israel that reaches out and finds the lost who have disappeared and brings them back together, reconstitutes them. And the one criteria of this is not that you are Jewish. It is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Our Jehovah's Witness friends have interpreted this number to mean that only 144,000 will be saved. It is dead wrong. It is exactly the opposite of what is intended to be said. Because I believe that the intent of this is to show that God calls a halt to the destruction of the world long enough to place his stamp, his stamp of ownership, his stamp of protection upon every single one of his children, no matter what tribe, what nation, what ethnicity, where they come from. The lost are found and stamped with the seal of God. That's what I think it believes. Where does this idea come from? Any ideas? This idea of sealing for protection. Where do we see it? How about Old Testament? I just raised up a ring to show you the story of Moses. One of the most famous sealing stories is the story of the Passover, remember? April 13th, 14th, and 15th, when you come to see Moses, you'll see it. Vivid technicolor, surround sound. 
The story of the Passover, it was the tenth of the plagues. And it's the worst of the plagues because the firstborn son in all of Israel is killed. Unless you have the blood of the lamb spread upon your lintel and the doorpost of your house. And when the the angel of death saw the blood upon the lintel and the doorpost, he passed over that house. They were sealed by the blood of the lamb. That story we're familiar with, but there's another wonderful story that I bet you're not as familiar with. And it comes out of Ezekiel 9. And in the prophecy of Ezekiel 9, the people of Israel have turned to idolatry. And God is furious with them. He is so furious, he orders six guards to go into into the city and destroy all of those who have bowed down to idols. But before he does, comes Sabbath. First comes rest. Because he does something first. He calls forth a man, and we are told he is clothed in linen. And he has a writing kit. And he tells this man with the writing kit to go into the city and put an ink mark on the forehead of everyone who grieves because the people have turned their backs on God. And the soldiers are to follow this man with the writing kit. And everyone he sees put a mark on, they, they, they survive, they spare them. And those who do not have the mark of, on their forehead indicating that they, have, that they are grieving that the rest of the nation has bowed down to idols, they are destroyed by the soldiers. In chapter 7 of Revelation, all of this rich imagery from the Old Testament comes together. Imagery of Passover, imagery of the modern-day political scene and the the meaning of the signet ring, the imagery of Ezekiel 9, for the sovereign God calls a halt to the devastation of the world long enough to place his seal upon his children. A seal that will identify them as his own. A seal that will protect them from the God-separating effects of the evil that we have seen revealed as it ranges around the world. Chapter 7 is a glorious Sabbath rest that reminds us of our security as children of God. I want to take you back to that Ezekiel story one more time because it's a wonderful little anecdote, incidental. Maybe it means something, maybe it doesn't, but you'll like it, I promise. Remember I told you of the man in linen who was ordered by God to place the stain, the ink mark on the forehead of every person? The text in the Hebrew tells us what that mark is to be. The mark is to be the Hebrew letter Tav. Do you know what a Tav looks like when it is drawn freehand in the Hebrew text? It is a cross. Now is that good or what? (laughs) In Ezekiel 9, the man is going around making the sign of the cross on the forehead of the people to save them from the wrath wrath of God to come. If that's not a great illustration, I don't know what is. Did you know that you have been sealed too? And it is not a mark on your forehead. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, In Christ you were also chosen. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were, get this, marked in him with a seal. What's the next part? What is the seal that marks us as God's children? What is the seal that marks us as the children of God so that when God looks at us, he says, oh, you belong to me? Ah, you're going to have to go home and read it. I won't read the rest to you. It is the Holy Spirit, yes! Someone's been reading Ephesians 1. Having believed, you were marked with him, with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Who is a deposit... Guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Did you know you are sealed if you are in Jesus Christ? If the spirit of Jesus Christ resides in your heart, he has also marked you so that every time God looks at you, he says, Ah, you you belong to me. You are one of mine. 
that can stand in the face of the world that is falling apart at the seams? Who is it that can stand up against tyranny and warfare and famine, death, religious persecution, nature falling apart? Who will be the last ones standing? The answer is the believer in Jesus Christ will be. The answer is the one who is marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit will be. That seal declares ownership. Jesus looks upon us and says, you belong to me. And that seal declares protection. But no matter what we face, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You are sealed. And you will be the last ones standing. This morning we come to a a profound image that helps us understand this. For we come to the supper of the Lord. We come to the table and we pour out the blood and we are reminded of Passover. We break the bread and we are reminded of the death of Christ that we might be His, that we might be spared, saved, redeemed, and sealed with His Holy Spirit to belong to His Father. And I invite all who would come to this table to do so. If you love Jesus Christ, if you are sorry, truly sorry for your sins and want to be different, This doesn't belong to the Presbyterians. This is the Lord's table. And you are welcome, welcome, welcome to come. Listen again to these words which we've heard so many times before. The Apostle Paul writes... I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant. Sealed in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so remembering me. So that whenever we eat this bread or drink from this cup, we proclaim the death of our Lord until he comes again. And now we offer to you this common bread and juice that they might be for you the body and blood of Jesus. And that somehow in the partaking of them, you will find nourishment for your souls. Let us pray. Holy God, would you set aside these common elements for a holy purpose? Holy Spirit, as we... Would you remind us again that we belong to you, that we are sealed by you, owned and protected? And may we live in the confident assurance, the blessed assurance of that fact. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us and grant us your peace. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Let's just come forward, please. As you receive the bread, would you retain it, please, so that we might all partake of it together, reminding us that we are the body of Christ, one in Jesus Christ. One or two.
the body of Christ broken for you. As we have taken of the cup of the bread together, symbolizing we are one church in Jesus Christ, we partake the cup separately, symbolizing the fact that Jesus Christ died for each of us individually. 